and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about climbing and parkour. We'll launch into all the ways you can vault, mount, scramble, and otherwise traverse the treacherous worlds of video games. To help me discuss climbing and parkour is a true American ninja warrior, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Oh my god. We're just we're just starting the episode out this way, huh? I I don't know if I'm as athletic as the Ninja Warrior. I don't know if you ever watched Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls lately, but you know you know the scene where he like exits the rhino robot that he's inside of. He's like he's like sweating well, who, naked. Yeah, who who could forget it? I can't expunge that from my memory if I tried. That's what I'm gonna look like by the end of this podcast. It's I have to turn off my AC and my and my fans in here. Oh, it, it's hot today. It it yes. here in Arizona it is like 110 degrees. It is okay. It's not that hot. And I thought it was bad down in El Paso. <laughs> it's hot here. It's hot here. And that uh, that other voice you're hearing is our our great guest for this episode. He's the IGF nominated developer behind Hypnospace Outlaw, Skatebird, and the brand new game Can Androids Pray? Please welcome to the show Zalavir Nelson Jr. Zalavir, how you doing, man? I'm doing very well. I wouldn't say I'm the only mind behind those very incredible games and collaborations, but uh, I'm very thankful to have played a part in making them i guess i'll start out by saying congratulations on the release of can androids pray we'll, we'll talk about that one a little bit later but you just you recently just got back from uh gdoc i want to i want to talk to you a little bit about that you did a presentation at gdoc what were you presenting there i did a presentation on reusing everything on getting the most out of the assets you create and continuing to use those assets use that content use structures and creation models uh in your future projects because games is one of the the few mediums where you can not only do that, but do that effectively and create new, interesting, and original compositions from common elements, formulas, and uh, gameplay systems, which is the exact kind of thing you break down on Game Breaking Feature. There's a stigma in games against this reuse, though, that I wanted to directly combat, uh, that I wanted to inspire. Oh, good. I was, I was just about to bring it up. Confidence inside uh, for the developers listening, and from what I've heard uh, since... A whole bunch of people have been like DMing me and telling me about how they've been sharing those uh, that video internally to b- bolster their teams or encourage their teams to say no, especially if we don't have the $100 million budget to make every exactly and every AK-47 from scratch and every game where we need an AK-47 no. and a cup. Yeah, it seems to have had a positive effect already, and I'm very thankful I had that platform to... Uh, bring that message across and to talk to a number of incredible creators of color as well as showcase uh, my game Candroids Prey that day alongside Niantic and Playdate. Those, those were my booth mates. Oh, nice. That's weird. Nice. Uh, yeah, I enjoy GDOC a whole bunch. It's funny that, that that's what you presented because I very recently just saw there was some backlash against the, the Pokemon games because there was some animations that were similar between a couple of the games. And uh, it bugs me when people see something like that and go like, lazy devs, they just reusing the same animation. And like when clearly there's a lot that goes into like budget being a very, very big one of them. But also like to me, it seems like games are this space like where you said you can just reuse these things like you're capable of reusing these things because like why does it matter if you completely reanimate what someone's doing with their hands when they're talking you know from one game to the next are are people really that focused on on those kinds of assets in a game but i don't know man these people these people are freaking about 
freaking out about the Pokemon stuff, it was like that one really bugged me. So I'm, I'm glad you did a presentation <laughs> putting a lot of those uh, concerns to rest, hopefully. In the past, there has been a ignorance about the way games are made and what goes into their creation, about the complexity of the elements introduced and the entire process of game development that companies have specifically taken advantage of uh, in order to sell their products. When Sega tells you that your Genesis has blast processing, they don't want you to ask what that means. They just want you to know that that's good. And we've seen this domino effect through the years where companies begin to uh, continue to obfuscate the game development process in order to sell their products, to make things sound very impressive, to get an edge up on the competition. It's now resulted in this culture where not only do most people not know the process of how games are made, but it's actively incentivized and profited from in a way that's now damaging those companies. When Sega reuses something today, they can be lambasted in a way that they wouldn't have been had there not been this precedent established that the way uh, games are made shouldn't be spoken about, that we shouldn't reveal the, uh, the curtain. Um, and when you contrast it with other mediums, music, film, literature, the difference in audience comprehension, uh, audience knowledge, and audience reaction to the people who make their entertainment possible is just wildly diverges, and it's something that needs to change. It seems like this is one of those things that I was hopeful that platforms like Twitter would take care of, where you can actually now see and hear from directly the people that are making the games. And I don't know that that has sort of been the uh, the fix that I was hoping it would be. You know, I, I was hoping that having devs be more out in front, you know, like the people who are actually making these games being out and vocal and talking about the process. I was hoping that it would impact the way that people receive games uh, in, a, in a positive way, but it, it really hasn't, at least not from what I've seen, hasn't like necessarily landed that way. And we talk about it on this show from time to time, but this is one of the things that Jared and I kind of try to pride ourselves on on this show is bringing a, a name and a face and a voice to the people who are making games because, man, I think a lot of times people just forget that there's like real living, breathing human beings with, you know, that are that are working a job and have families and responsibilities and stuff that are behind the games that they enjoy so much. It's, and it's, I, I, think, I think one thing to battle against in this perception, and that leads directly into the, uh, the models of movement that we'll be talking about today, is that it's perceived as cutting corners. When actually, the more time Pokemon spends redoing animations, for example, uh, or basing mm -hmm. their animation on a familiar um, template, because if you actually know how games are made, you'll recognize that that is not the same animation. Uh, it looks very similar because it was supposed to, because Pokemon games use a common library of expressions to express emotions or whatever. So you have the giant asset list of, I need this many emotions, um, emotion animations, and then I can project this across all the characters of the game to convey different things. But that all of those have to be built again because it's different rigs, it's different architecture. They just happen to look similar because they have similar purposes in the pipeline. So going into what we're talking about today about movement systems, going into the perception that this is cutting corners, the more time po the Pokemon developers spend completely reinventing the box of what animations convey which emotions, the less time they have to make new Pokemon, to create <laughs> new storylines. 
This isn't cutting corners. This is finding the way to make the most game in the time yeah. available to the highest quality possible. And games is so privileged that they have this ability that no other medium mm-hmm. has. And so recognizing it as a strength that it has on, in our culture and in the games themselves, I think is going to be a vital portion of games as a medium moving forward. Is the presentation you did available online anywhere? It is in the live stream for GDOC. They've released the entire live stream of the day's talks, and that's available online. Uh, And they will also be releasing the talks individually in the coming weeks. So you can watch it online now. Yeah. Before we move on to Can Androids Pray, was there any were there any games that you saw at GDOC that you're really excited to play from other people? To be honest, I think that um, going through the list of games that were shown at uh, GDOC is a really good exa- uh, way to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in games today. The range of titles is incredibly broad. I took the time to play many of them, talk to many of the developers behind them, and I, I, I'm not going to call it any specific ones because I don't want to miss folks, but genuinely, just look at who is presenting at GDOC, and you have a snapshot of what the future of games looks like. Now, let's talk about Can Androids Pray? This is your new game, and again, congratulations on the on the release. What is this game? Just, I guess, can you tell me just what this game is in a general sense? Androids Pray is a uh, short-form narrative game about angry femme mech pilots at the end of the world, and also God. Uh, this is a final conversation. You are going to die. You're stranded on a godforsaken planet by... Spoiler alert. A... Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think you forgot to put a spoiler alert oh, at the start no, of this. Oh, there's no spoiler alert here. That's, okay. the, that's the entire... The entire game is about death, about inevitability, to the point that I had to explain the concept of death to a child after they finished playing. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so, spoiler alert. This is a game about death, and it is about the experience of you've been stranded on a godforsaken planet, your government doesn't care about you that you have fought for, and you're going to die. And it's your final it's final conversation between you and a battlefield companion as you consider what this means, what you believe, and uh, what comes next, if anything. And the kid, after playing the game, um, asked me, are they going to have more adventures after this? And I said, no. And the kid said, why? And I said, because they're dead. And the kid said, what does that mean? And my first <laughs> attempt at explaining this was, well, imagine if you <laughs> went to sleep and when you woke up, you weren't there anymore. Oh, boy. And that's not a great way of explaining death. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, but I did to say, like, well, there's other people who uh, are waiting to play the game. And it's, it's, the, it's, the, parents, uh, it's the parents' job now. It's the parents' job now, and I have to live with what I've done. You sent those parents home with homework. (laughs) Just a little bit. Uh, And and I do recognize my part in this. (laughs) So what inspired you to make this game? It sounds very very heavy. Like, where did this idea come from? My portfolio of games in the past has always been about balancing the dark with the light, seeing the space to do something interesting and still accessible with a potentially dark theme. So it falls right within the league of the type of games I've made before. And when I, and speaking of production, when I was looking at this type of game, uh, Natalie Clayton, my um, the, the developer I worked with to bring uh, this vision to life, I was thinking about 
why don't games have the equivalent of a bottle episode? Again, in TV, we're familiar with the concept of a bottle episode. They don't have the budget to move sets and locations, so they have to do a single location story and do something that makes the world feel big and alive in that setting. And it's a real good template for games. It, 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 it seems like it should make all the sense in the world, and yet that format hasn't been utilized in our medium. Um, and so I thought, what is a story that is specifically about making as many affordances for budget as possible, because we made the game basically on no budget. So I created a setting that meant there was no animations because your mechs were disabled, so you can't move. We just had, there's just camera angle switches. Um, and within this framework, next question was, okay, what are the characters? Well, you're in a mech, so can't see faces. Don't have to worry about facial animation anymore. It was about seeing the limitations even imposing arbitrary limitations to uh, put onto this project and then uh, summarily making something as interesting as possible within that framework. And judging by the commercial and critical reception, uh, judging by what I saw in person at GDOC, it seems that we've succeeded. I always like hearing where people come up with the ideas for their games because there's always like there's always something kind of cool and interesting behind it. Like no one ever just goes like, I just want to make a mech game. <laughs> I've I've yet to run into the person who says anything like that. So thank you for sharing that. Um so so what is the hook? Like what, what should be what should people be excited for about to play this game? It's the only mech game brave enough to have one the very first choice in the title be the option to say, excuse the uh, French, but fuck my giant metallic robot body. It's a choice-based experience. It is about it's, this. It's an adults-only game, apparently. <laughs> the hook here is you get to experience, in the length of a sitcom, a touching, emotional story about this incredibly relevant and touching topic. And uh, it's good. Got great music and art and stuff. <laughs> Nice. I'm I'm looking forward to playing this one. It seems right up my alley, like the kind of game that I would be all about. I love a good uh, sci-fi story. Now, where can people pick up Can Androids Pray? It is an itch.io exclusive for now. Itch.io. And we'll uh, when this episode goes live, we'll also make sure and tweet out the link to the game. So anybody who is listening should definitely go check that one out. Let's jump into talking about some climbing and some parkour and some some jumping and stuff. Jared, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick us off? with the way we always do a little history lesson on these mechanics. Where did this all start at? One of the most relevant and early examples that we could find on this one was Pitfall for the Atari 2600. It was released in 1982, designed by David Crane and published by Activision. If you're not familiar with this, you traverse a jungle filled with obstacles and you're trying to collect 32 different treasures within the time limit. Uh, it was heavily inspired by Tarzan and the first Indiana Jones film. Uh, might have led to the game's success as well, with those tones being popular around the time that those films came out. Um, you, you run, you jump, you climb, and you swing on ropes to avoid obstacles like barrels, snakes, and scorpions. Uh, and, of course, the pitfalls, where your guy would die. In our last episode, our minor issues episode, we talked about ladders as well. We felt like that might come up here. Well, and we had cited Donkey Kong as being one of the early examples of a game that featured climbing ladders as a core mechanic of the game. And that, that was a year before this. So this is where I think we're going to kind of start to get into the definition, like what what we mean when we're talking about climbing and parkour and stuff in, in games, because 
that to me, there, there feels like a difference between the kind of climbing and stuff that you do in Donkey Kong and the kind of traversal that happens in Pitfall where you're using a rope to swing across pits and get over obstacles and stuff like that. Sure. There's like some manner of, of physics, like skill-based physics in there. It is. There's also a, uh, a momentum that often a more like you can absolutely make the comparison of Pitfall versus uh, Donkey Kong. It's more stolid, right? It's stodgy in a way that Pitfall purposely attempts to move away from because it's about the swinging, the running, the moving, the constant uh, forward momentum that many games, especially uh, aggressive titles that would come down the road, attempt to encourage. I was about to say, like, there's something I can't quite put my finger on about it, but you just nailed it. <laughs> this is why this is why we have knowledgeable guests on the show, Jared, is to definitely make up for my shortcomings. <laughs> That's the whole premise of what we do here. That is, yeah. Uh, another good example was Prince of Persia for the Apple II computer. It came out in 1989. It was designed by Jordan Mensher and published by Borderbund for the Apple II. The player takes on the role of an unnamed protagonist who must navigate through dungeons to save a princess and escape. So completely original story. No one ever done nope. before. <laughs> um, and, but in Prince of Persia, you have to avoid traps and, and other obstacles and perils by running and jumping. But the game introduced a mechanic of grabbing on to ledges and hoisting yourself up. So you're kind of, I guess, a clambering would be another word for that. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was used to clear gaps or too large uh, for the protagonist to land on his feet. So that ended like you know that added a little bit of tension to some of your jumps. Yeah, grab on by the tips of your fingers and grabbing yourself up by the tips of your fingers isn't something that we typically do in our daily life. As is just well, I don't know. Speak for, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> my house my house is treacherous. It is full of perils that must be left over and I must be grabbing everything with the tips of my fingers. You guys are clearly not into CrossFit. <laughs> and and every day you have to save your family from an evil wizard. Uh <laughs> it keeps you sharp. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's this thing of like why has this and has this why is this form of me- of movement not just become necessary but also standardized? People want to have these movement options, climbing, parkouring, so on. Why is it so important? I've got a friend who works on uh, Murder Mysteries, uh, Gary King's, uh, the entire their entire uh, catalog of Murder Mysteries um, through National Insecurities have been very well received. They made uh, Once Upon a Crime in the West and what was the other one? Uh, 2001, A Space Felony. So great. Crazy. These are all great titles. <laughs> yeah. Games inspired by uh, classic cinema and uh, innovations that turn it into a murder mystery setting. And one thing that they have consistently encountered was they're making a first person game where you don't need to jump. You're investigating clues. You're roaming through a space. You don't need, especially in Once Upon a Crime in the West, to jump. And yet players would hammer on the space key expecting something to happen. They'd ask hey, why can't I do this? And they're like, well, you don't have to. This, the game isn't about that. But players want that. Why? And I think a crucial piece of why we, we've seen this, as I'm sure Jared, as Jared continues to go through the history, uh, we're going to see that this becomes more and more prominent. The new Doom games, the Call of Duty games, introducing uh, mantling mechanics, uh, Destiny doing the same thing. Developers constantly introducing new ways of jumping, new ways of uh, first-person traversal that rely upon it. 
Yeah, PUBG even. They didn't they didn't have vaulting when the game came out in early access. So you had to go around all the tiny fences. And and now they've not only added vaulting and jumping through windows, but now you can clamber up and and, and pull yourself up on roofs and stuff now. So they completely uh, added a new mechanic, vertical mechanic to that game, you know, a, a year and a half, two years after it came out. You know what that reminds me of? You remember back when we played DayZ a lot? And there was the, uh, I forget what button you could press on the keyboard, but it was, it would like do the jump over fence. So like if you were standing at a fence, your character would do it like yeah, an anything two and a half get over the fence. feet tall, you're, you're good to just kind but, of almost. But you could, but you could just it. do, you could just do it anywhere. You didn't have to be near <laughs> a fence. So your character just looked like a, you, your character just looked like a psychopath in the middle of a field. Yeah, that was part <laughs> of the fun of the Arma engine. It was just kind of, uh, they just had these rigged animations and you're like, I don't know, oh. this will work sometimes. Whisper kicks, we called them. Whisper kicks. In games, the basic action of moving through a world often isn't engaging in itself. You have this thing where you're just holding on the left stick if you're using a controller, right? Or you're just using WASD. Um, so when people look for mantling and movement mechanics, and when we implement them, what we're actually doing is we're attempting to add inherent interest to actions which in themselves... Walking takes a great deal of effort in real life. In games, it's as easy as uh, sticking over, as, as holding your left stick. So looking for a similar level of effort, a similar level of contrivance uh, to move through the world is, I think, what you can lay the popularity of a lot of these mechanics to. People want to move through a world engagingly, and having suddenly having a mantle ability or jumping ability in a very simple way gives you more avenues to engage with a space in a very physical manner do we need to define parkour do you think there's people who are listening who might not be familiar with the term parkour or has it become popular enough that everyone knows it well i mean i think for the you know like i always say for the purposes of our discussion here maybe we should maybe put some constraints on it because is mario parkour is he doing parkour kind of i don't know Depends on I don't the know game. if I would bring it up in this discussion. Yeah, so if we're looking at something like Super Mario Brothers, does that fit in this definition? Because there's not necessarily any like climbing mechanics per se, but there is, you know, like a lot of movement and jumping mechanics. Does that are, are we sort of fitting that into our definition of what, what we're talking about here? Well, parkour as a practice for people who aren't familiar with it, um, is yeah, it's it's free running, it's free movement. It comes from the um from the art of looking at a space and being like, you know what, I can flip over that set of handrails and then I can slide down that and then I can jump off of that to get to a place that you couldn't reach otherwise. So I think maybe constraining our discussion to games where that where movement is a part of a constant sense of forward momentum, that urgency, might help us uh, balance uh, where what we discuss. Is something like like ladders, does that fit? If we just say like ladders, because to me that doesn't feel no. like like sort of like the climbing or parkour that we're discussing here, um, unless you're doing like a, a fancy flip off the ladder or something. I think most people will get it if they've seen an Assassin's Creed game ever in their lives. You know, like that, exactly. I think okay. is what what we're trying to focus movement on movement that right? segues into other movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Now. Now, before we before we jump into Assassin's Creed, because as we talk about this, I mean, that's going to be, I think, the big elephant in the room, right? Like, that's what's going to be on most people's mind when they're thinking about a game that features running and climbing and parkour front and center. But let's take it back a step. 
Zalavir, do you have any memories like the first game that you played that featured some kind of climbing or parkour mechanic where it stood out in your mind for the first time of like, oh, this is a, like a new way to traverse the world. This is a new way to, to interact with the play space that I haven't seen before. I can't, but I can remember um, the first game that I ever played and I thought, why can't I do X? And I, I, I think you can trace it back to The Legend of Zelda. I want to get over that fence. I don't want to have to move across move through a house, move through a loading zone, move through the back door of the loading zone to get back into this, this pen I'm trying to get into. And I just want to, I just want to, to me, the move forward movement felt natural. So I, I, I would constantly ask, why can't I do this? Why can't I just climb this arbitrary obstacle? Why can't I just uh, move over this, this chest high wall? Uh, and as I, of course, later became a game developer, I realized why, and it's because it's hell. It's awful. <laughs> I've had friends who have gone through horrible crunch periods because midway through development, jumping is added to the game or mantling, and suddenly they have to rethink the entire play space for that additional affordance. I've seen games that, like Gears of War, specifically use your context to justify why jumping isn't a thing. Why can't you jump? It's because you're 400 pounds of muscle. <laughs> and moving between cover, uh, lateral movement is instead the quickest way and the encouraged way to move through a space. So from those early days questioning why can't I do X and then examining how instead the game wished me to move through its world is what I can actually trace that back a lot of my design thought today too. No, that's great. I, uh, we, we typically ask people's first experiences, but we've ever we've never asked a guest what their first non-experience was. And I think that's I think that's a great way to approach it. Like the first time you encounter something and think to yourself, like, why can't I do this thing? That's great. I, I remember playing Tenchu for the PlayStation one. And that for me was like one of the first games where uh, vertical movement be was a big part of the gameplay. And in that game, you had a uh, like a grappling hook that you would throw. So again, I don't know if it like perfectly fits this definition that we're trying to nail down. And maybe it's because it was like, you know, going from Super Nintendo now into these like 3D play spaces where you felt more engaged in the world. The sense of verticality becomes something more meaningful because you can, you know, look down and see the people below you and you can look up and see the next highest thing that you want to reach to. But for me, that was like that was the first time in a game where I was like, this is cool. The ability to like move up onto a roof and drop down on people. Uh, it, it really, really worked for that game and for that kind of experience in an interesting way. Jared, how about you? Do you remember like the first game that you, that you uh, played where you, you really got a sense for the uh, climbing and parkour or where you couldn't do it and you wished you could? Well, I mean, we kind of said like maybe Mario doesn't count, but what about Sonic? Does Sonic count? Cause I feel like there was like hanging off ledges and, and, gaps and stuff like that and you're always trying to you know you're always trying to be moving in that game would that count mm, or, or is or is because <laughs> by its nature it's more of a, a horizontal game design again this is one of those things where like just my gut reaction is no it doesn't count it is like this sense of like speed and momentum and movement that that we are talking about so i don't know why i feel inclined to say it doesn't really count for this discussion when it it does seem to occupy so many of those criteria that we're talking about so sonic does retain the the move these movement capabilities built on urgency built on flow that is a, a seemingly a critical part of our discussion but another critical part of our discussion is also that 
that is based on this sense of physicality that Sonic doesn't have. He, he gets around by running. He is a runner. He is a jumper. Your flow is based off of chaining, running, and jumping in a way that doesn't involve your hands, in a way that doesn't involve a lot of physicality with a space. So maybe that's the missing link here. Okay, so then my, my backup answer was going to be the original Tomb Raider games, um, where they sure really wanted you to do a lot of jumping and climbing that game, and mm. it felt real bad every time. <laughs> even, even in the day, it felt bad. I was like, this is janky. It's like, kind of you kind of like tiptoe your way to the edge and then like turn around because you could do like more of a backflip to get distance but then you'd break she'd make a god-awful noise and you'd break her neck on the ground yeah yeah tomb raiders tomb raiders interesting because that was one of the ones i'd put in the show notes also that i thought was you know one of one of the earlier experiences with uh like climbing and parkour the thing is in in the tomb raider games it's much more of like a puzzle mechanic like the uh all of the uh, platforming that happens in that game, uh, especially in the in the first of the Tomb Raider games, is more of like solving a puzzle using the movements that are available to Lara Croft, and not so much about like you know getting through the space quickly or with a lot of momentum. So I wonder if this mechanic is something that's been limited by technology, because I you know it, my my next answer would probably be Assassin's Creed. That's many years later, and um, I, I think that yeah. maybe it's because of advancements of mm-hmm. animation technology and, and chaining those animations together and making the physics feel right and getting that momentum to yeah. feel right uh, was very much you know a product of its time because we didn't really see too many examples like before Assassin's Creed. Even even Prince of Persia itself had a similar deliberate pacing to it that. It just took advantage of the affordances of its time to then turn that into, as um, Jared said, a, a puzzle. So let's talk about Assassin's Creed. This seems like a good time to jump into Assassin's Creed. This was the first time where these kinds of mechanics really popped off. I don't remember any games before Assassin's Creed that really marketed themselves based on their their movement in the way that Assassin's Creed did. Like I remember all the marketing leading up to it. And like, sure, there was some of the marketing around, oh, you know, we, we set it in like a historical time period and we went back, you know, we worked with historians to make sure that the world was accurate. And there was, you know, I, I remember that kind of stuff in the marketing for the game. But the the big thing that I remember, and I think the thing that most people would probably associate first and foremost with Assassin's Creed was the movement style that they developed for that game. Yeah, but before I even played it, I was like, oh, it's that, I, I just knew it as like that parkour game. Yeah, I think that's I how think people still look at it. It was one of the first it. games to use the word parkour explicitly. And this goes back to what you were saying, Jared. Part of it was there was this technological advancement that happened between whatever it was, like PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3. I this think isn't your dad's it. platformer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I remember them saying, like, any surface that sticks out, you know, sticks out of a wall, two inches can be grabbed onto. And it was like, wow, the fidelity in this world allows you to see things that stick out of the walls by two inches. And I can grab that. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like they were really pushing this like this idea of like the technology is improved. And now we can now you can really experience the world to the fullest. And and while I had my issues with that game, that was an experience playing a game that I had never experienced before. Just that that level of freedom and, and mm-hmm. fluidity of movement really uh you know, stuck out as the shining feature of that game. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so like, I think that's, it's a good reason why uh, this title is so explicit in this conversation. 
Can I can I say something that might get me in trouble, Jared? Always. Assassin's Creed One better than Assassin's Creed Two. Fight me, Internet. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I never really enjoyed this game. I was like I you know what I did was I first played Assassin's Creed was running around a bunch, getting a bunch of fights, and then I never beat it. And then that was the story of maybe this will be the Assassin's Creed for me. And um, they, they just they just never ended up being. What I, I thought you found. I, I thought you liked this newest one. Were you not a big fan of Odyssey? I thought this was the one that got you in. Uh, about forty hours in, and I was barely breaking the surface. I kind of fell off a little bit. I just mm. ended up playing in other games. But yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. One, one of the funny things about that series, though, is like it, I I remember them sort of going out of their way to justify, like, well, he's you know a part of this ancient order. He's a trained assassin, so he can climb really well, and the architecture of the city really lends it to you know escaping from enemies or following people unnoticed um and then here we are odyssey and it's just like i don't know they can just kind of do it now like everybody there's no good reason why this this gladiator warrior can can climb listen in ancient greece it was very very important for you to be able to free run at any moment of the day (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) so they 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 know what they have they know why it's good and and people know assassin's creed so there's like ah we don't explain it they can just do it has Assassin's Creed colored our expectations for all third-person action games now? And I think this is going back to something that Zalavir had said earlier, which is that like now it's almost just like we have a lot of these mechanics in games because now it's just the way that games are made. Like now, if you've got a third-person action platformer, you have to have some kind of climbing or or you know. Uh, parkour mechanics and, and stuff like that in the game is it because of assassin's creed is is that the reason that we that it seems like there's now this obligation to put these mechanics into these games i think it's because people solve problems that, and other people look at how those problems are solved and go like actually yeah this would work for me too or actually yeah we could do something interesting here if you go back to mirror's edge the uh other parkour game lost to history Loved by some. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. There is this really interesting, there's this really interesting thing there where people were just trying to figure out, yeah, can you do parkour in first person? It turns out you can, kind of. And by the time Mayor's Edge Catalyst came out, the process of parkouring was so non-revolutionary that its method of navigation through the world previously, what was its hook, was done better by Call of Duty. And that's an interesting world to fall into, a world where your hook is done better and more fluidly and has more inter- it has more interesting context within a game that was never designed for it. Mirror's Edge brings up another interesting point, which is these differences between the first person world traversal and the third person, where where I think it, it felt so natural in third person to, oh, my character can run and climb and you're still able to like really see the world and see where your character's going and it it seemed like it took a lot longer for games to get right the first person traversal in that same kind of movement style because when you're in first person and you're climbing a wall your nose is touching the wall you know like you're you're just facing the wall and it can be kind of tricky to communicate where you're at in the play space when all you see is just the texture of the wall right in front of you and you needed a high fidelity enough wall for that texture to not just be a mm-hmm. blurry mess. Yeah, we have an interesting thing in games where we solve problems, and when enough of those problems are solved in enough games in similar ways, it's then expected. If I was to make a first-person 
game of a certain kind today that there would be a certain amount of players who were actually disappointed if they didn't have certain affordances in a play space. And they're right to believe so because the meaning of what that game is has changed. There was a certain point where Doom defined a first-person game in a lot of respects. In a similar regard, new mechanics rise up to become expected from the medium, which once they're expected in certain portions, then you have the opportunity for throwbacks. Suddenly we have games that do play like old Doom. People joyfully receive them because Mm -hmm. the new affordances, turns out, they don't have to be everywhere. You can have them in specific titles based off of need, based off of fit. That's one of the reasons why games are so exciting to be, it's such an exciting space to be in, right? The, what a me- the meaning of what a game is or can be, what an entire genre can be, evolves over time. To me, it's not so much like it's expected necessarily. You know, you're using like the example of Doom being, you know, what a first person shooter used to be. And then we've, we've come so far in game design that now those kinds of games can feel antiquated. But you can also have these nostalgic experiences with new games that throw back to those. But they often use the old style of graphics to communicate. Don't expect, you know, newer video game mechanics here. This because is we're your using dad's this. platformer. But the, so <laughs> I, I think the issue is, and, and I'll, I'll bring up Horizon Zero Dawn here, is that when a game presents you with something, like uh, like you earlier, you were talking about Zelda and and not being able to like simply jump a fence. Like if I'm playing a game now that has a you know some sort of jumping mechanic, and I see and I see an area that I feel like I should be able to access and I'm not able to access it, then the first you know like like a fence, like if, well, why can't I jump this fence? You know, like I, I feel like I could, my character should be able to jump this fence. I feel like in another game similar to this one my character would be able to jump this fence and to me that is where it start it kind of starts to feel like a like a failure of design and so now this is where i'll bring in horizon zero dawn horizon zero dawn's a game that presents itself as an open world game and includes mechanics where there is climbing you're you're asked early on in the game to do the uh like this trial to become uh I don't remember what was going on. You were trying to become like a higher up member of the tribe or something at the start of that game. And all the all the young people go through this trial. And and in that trial it's got climbing and jumping and grabbing and all the all you know all these movement mechanics. But once it lets you out into the world, those mechanics can only be used in very specific places. So that when I look at a spot like uh like a cliff face and I feel like, "Oh, Aloy should be able to jump and grab on and climb here because it's what I've done earlier in this game and it's what I've done in other similar games and then she can't do it that feels like that ends up feeling like a letdown it feels like a failure to me in those situations you start to see the gaminess of it right because in that game I think it was like you would there would be like yellow handholdy areas Mm -hmm. and you very clearly be like okay I can definitely climb that and in a game where you're playing as a character who is smooth in her animations and she's fast, you know, she's an archer and she can flip and, and swing her, her lance and uh, all that stuff. Yeah, it, it does feel kind of, uh, it takes you out of the tone that they've set when it's, well, here's an open world game, but you can only, it's only open in the ways that we want it to be open. Yeah, and I and I feel bad because I don't mean, like, I, I don't play these games and I, I definitely try not to, like, carry with me the expectations from other games. So I, it's not like I look at Horizon Zero Dawn and I say this looks like Assassin's Creed I should be able to do everything that I could do in Assassin's Creed in this game but I think about another game like God of War which I've been playing recently finally uh, (laughs) 
A little, I'm a little bit behind. What am I? The, the PS4 years? version. I'm yeah, they got yeah, got a War PS4. What am I like two years late on it? But um, that's a game where even though it, it's similar in the the you know the the camera style to an Assassin's Creed game, I don't ever really feel compelled to like climb anything. And it's I, I think it's because they've designed those play spaces more intentionally to let you know like this is where you can climb, this is where you can't climb. And I don't ever really feel like, oh, why can't I climb here when I encounter, you know, something where I might otherwise think I should be able to climb. So then from that perspective, how did you first feel about Dark Souls? And that game is, you know, pretty standard looking from first glance, third person action game um, with not there's no really there's no jump. I mean, there is, but it's not really used in the way that you would expect. Yeah. If you do use it, it's very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, you're always just like, this is going to kill me 100%. Well, what, is it, well, what isn't dangerous in that game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just the moving around that game is dangerous, right? It's uh, yeah. very easy to die in so many ways. Yeah. But um, that, you know, it first felt weird to me. And I hadn't had experience with those games before. I'm like, okay, this is a game where I feel like I should be able to jump. And it's an action game. And mm-hmm. But then you start feeling the weight of every movement in that game and, and how every step and, and swing of your weapon kind of matters. And you can see why they didn't need to include it. But I, I feel like there's probably a way if they wanted to. I think, yeah. you, I think you nailed something really vital to this discussion, which is expectation. I'll give you a thought experiment. If in God of War you were playing as Atreus instead of uh, Dad Kratos, would you have a different expectation of your movement affordances? Would you think, ah man, because I'm an archer, I should be able to get up there and do and solve solutions in a certain way that muscle-bound, giant, hefty Dad doesn't even give you that similar expectation. It goes back to the Gears of War thing, right? We don't expect these mm-hmm. people to be very sprightly and move across the map with uh, incredible ease, right? They are tanks yeah. in human form. And n- nailing down that context and that expectation, I think, is a vital part of why they work when they do work. Aloy has been shown to be a capable person who th- thinks outside of the box to solve problems. Well, Thinking outside of a box often involves moving to a different part of space, and you're an archer. And when you can't do that, that fantasy is broken in a way that Kratos is not. I think you're you're hitting the nail right on the head, right? Is they've designed the game in a way to set those expectations early, and and I think that's where Horizon Zero Dawn for me kind of felt short was because it, the expectations that they set were fighting with the actual gameplay, and in these other situations that you've described they've done a good job of not only defining the characters, but that the play space as well. So that I don't, I don't personally have those expectations of being able to like climb and vault and parkour all over the place in a game like God of War. Zolivir, are there any other games that stick out in your mind as, as having like really, really good examples of parkour? Like in your mind, what game like really nails the movement through the world? I think uh, the first person space honestly does parkour the best these days. Um, I think of games like Homefront the Revolution, where you are jumping between houses and moving over pieces of the world to escape from authoritarian folks that you're running this guerrilla war against. I think of even the Far Cry games have gotten deep into this. Uh, I think of Wolfenstein Youngblood, which I just finished playing through with a friend, where the aggression of movement and the mantling and the uh, platforming is a vital part of how you move through the world, wondering how you get from one space to another. 
Um, I'm just a massive fan of first-person games in general. Now, I have a question for you. Has Destiny 2 introduced like a slight climb mechanic? Like if you hit the edge of something, you climb up it that I mm-hmm. don't believe was in Destiny 1. It was not. Now, was that additive to the experience for you when you went from Destiny 1 to Destiny 2? Or if you played them the other way around, you know, did it feel like you were missing something going back from Destiny 2 to Destiny 1? I would actually say Destiny is a really interesting example because I didn't miss that parkour mechanic. The play spaces were built in such a way that um, when I made a jump, I easily made the jump. Mm-hmm. I, I If I failed, it was by a significant margin of error. Coming to Destiny 2, suddenly these play spaces are far, far more... It's a different uh, architecture. I think a the, the tools that they've used to build their game are a bit better as well now. So you've got these far more varied play spaces. And the difference between me making a jump or not is suddenly, by the variety of the environment and the fidelity of it, uh, much smaller. So I'm coming into this new experience. And again, much like Destiny 1, I fe- it feels natural how I'm moving through it. It's just the context for my actions has changed uh in, in both circumstances it's handled really well it's simply a matter of the places in which it it, it that movement is contextualized people who listen to the show know that i've been playing a lot of apex legends uh, and that's a game that allows for just you know if you jump up to an, a ledge you can grab onto it and to me that is where it's just sort of expected in design now, I think. Like, it, 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 it's not necessarily super additive to the experience. Although, like, if you watch some of the pro streamers and stuff, they, they do some pretty wild climbing stuff that I didn't even realize was possible until I watched them do it. But, for you know, for the, the average person like myself, it, it, it feels like, yeah, it's, it's there. That's just the way first-person shooters are now. Like, yeah, now I'm just... Now, whenever I jump to a ledge, my character will climb it. What did you feel about the slide mechanic? Because... Yeah, as you mentioned, it's kind of standard in terms of its functional design and uh, of the combat space. You can move, you can jump, you can mantle things, you can climb very capably, but that's it's, it's fairly basic in terms of its mm-hmm. implementation and its use. But what about that slide? How does that change the way you move through the world? Cause that's, yeah, I love, I love it. I love the slide. Because it's special, right? It's significant mm-hmm. to your movement mm-hmm. options in a way yep. that climbing isn't. You don't really need to climb through the world all that much, but the, the way that it sliding, much like uh, skiing did to people who played Tribes once upon a time, um, was such a huge difference to how you saw your movement in the world that that felt special. It felt good in a way that the basic functional does not. We've never brought this up before, but skiing in Tribes is a true game breaking feature you know that was, <laughs> you know that was like a like a bug right and then they ended up making it a key feature of the games like yeah. moving forward and i, I, I was chasing that feeling for a long time that that's a game that's a game breaking feature right there jared uh i love it <laughs> when i played apex legends for the first weekend that that game was out i expected that slide mechanic to be in every game even though i know obviously it wasn't like that wasn't something that, mm-hmm. that people have done but like as soon as i went back to another first person game and i couldn't slide down and, and get that momentum going man i missed it so much mm-hmm. uh, and i would love to see that that more of that kind of stuff zolivir i i think was right on the money right is that like the climbing is functional but the sliding is essential like that's a perfect way to to put it for for that experience like i, I think that absolutely nails it so w- when i was like 
putting together the notes for this and putting together my thoughts for our discussion on climbing and parkour, one of the things that reminded me of was something we kind of talked about a little bit with Carolyn Pettit a couple episodes ago when we were talking about detective vision. And like one of the reasons I think I really like the idea of parkour, like those mechanics in games, is because it's a way to empower the player through means that are not violent, right? So we talked about detective vision being this way to like, especially in the Batman games, being a really good way to give you the sense that you are Batman, but not just like Batman punching people. Like you're you're actually now it's giving you the sense of being detective Batman. And and that was really cool in those games. And I think that that's kind of why the first Assassin's Creed felt so exciting, so exhilarating to me is because it it was this new sense of empowerment. Like I, my character is now really capable at this like brand new thing I've never experienced before. And, and I don't know, I, that that was just something that had kind of crossed my mind as, as we were preparing to do this episode is like these these ways to give power to the players that doesn't involve just giving them a bigger gun or, you know, slow down time to shoot people in the head or whatever. Well, that was like the whole premise of Mirror's Edge, right? It was like there there were enemies with guns in it, but you were actively mm-hmm. uh, discouraged from using it. I mean, in fact, it felt terrible to shoot a gun in that game. <laughs> they just made, was... the, they made they made the mechanics so terrible you never wanted to do it. <laughs> but that yeah, that was the thing. It's like, yeah, you are running away and you are a free runner and you're trying to make deliveries and like that is the game. And it's still cool. And like, they, you know, they found ways, of course, to introduce violence into the conflict, but you didn't have to shoot anybody. Really. Mm-hmm. And that, and that that really always stuck out to me. I was like, I'm glad people are trying this because not every game has to be shooty. And I think you raised a really interesting thing there where that's a legitimate design strategy. If you make certain things feel bad, people will engage with that less. And I actually talk to my designer friends and my developer friends quite often about what we will, for production reasons and for development reasons, for focus reasons, not make feel good in our game, specifically to encourage people to engage with the worlds that we've built the way that is optimal for their experience. I just wanted to bring up a game that we haven't touched on yet. Well, actually two games. And I want to start with the original Quake multiplayer experience. The game was fast. It was designed to be a fast-paced game. So your character already kind of runs pretty quickly. But once people figured out the physics of that engine, they were able to do a thing called bunny hopping. And it really built up a lot of momentum. And so if you're really good at the locomotion of the game, you could basically fly through that game at top speed and, uh, you know, all the pro level players zipped around quite a bit. You get to ledges really fast. You're jumping off jump pads. Uh, It's a really interesting feeling playing that way. And, you know, in fact, people still play Quake today with Quake Live because I think that's kind of a unique multiplayer experience. Now, a game that sort of gave me a similar feeling that came out more recently is Titanfall and Titanfall 2. We were talking earlier about how in Gears of War, it's like you, you don't feel like you should be able to like jump around and, and, and be you know very uh, agile as those, as those characters because they're basically tanks. Uh, but the Titanfall game does both, which I think is amazing. You, you, if you are really good at the wall running and the, uh, the grappling and everything like that, you can fly through those levels. You can get behind enemy lines before they know what's going on, and that always felt really good. Uh, and then once you build up enough of your your meter to call in your your huge mech titans, you're more you're more stuck to the ground, but you feel the weight and the power trade off there. Uh, and the interaction between those two mechanics was like I think an incredibly well 
executed design by Respawn. And it's why I'm excited that Respawn's doing the new Star Wars game. Does that have a title yet? I don't remember. Star Wars Fallen Order. There you go. Fallen Order. People are still unsure what that game's going to look like or feel like, but I, I do feel like the Star Wars universe would lend themselves to both of those styles of gameplay, the, the agile, you know, floating around, flying around, and also the, the more grounded tank experience. And I think that that studio really understands what makes those things special. I don't think you could separate the, the movement mechanics in Titanfall, particularly Titanfall 2, from the, the rest of the game. Like, they're, they're so interwoven. So much so that the campaign in Titanfall 2 is centered around that, you know, is you would you would mm-hmm. go through time while also running and jumping and uh it was some of the smartest design i had ever seen so whatever whatever respawn has their thumb on uh, i want to see more of that stuff too yeah i um I, re- I remember hearing from one of the devs on that team they were saying like basically everyone was sort of just allowed to come up with just a cool idea like they they weren't building full worlds or levels they were building like just little cool experiences they had these mechanics established originally like oh well you know we'll have the wall running and we'll have the vaulting and all that stuff and then they let everybody on the team just kind of loose like hey come up with something fun to do with this and then they found a way to kind of put them together into a story of a game but it came from just people being free to experiment and find out the the coolest thing that they could do with that mechanic I, I have a question. Do you think that the the rise of parkour in games and stuff is linked to the rise of parkour in popular culture? Because I, I remember probably about, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I, I feel like parkour had this, it was everywhere, right? Like the the first of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies had a parkour segment in it and Die Hard 4 had a parkour segment. And like there was this... Uh, this French film that I that I really love called District B thirteen, but it like was popular in the United States, and it was all centered around parkour. Do you think that the uh, that that rise in popular culture is why games started to become interested more in exploring parkour as a mechanic in games? I think every medium has its cycles, and I think games is has one of the most obvious cycles in any form of media in terms of the trends that it follows. Indie games that do really cool, interesting things today, you'll see similar concepts pop up in titles four or five years from now because of how AAA development cycles work. That people finally finish a game, they get out of the cycles of crunch and production, they think, okay, I'm gonna play I'm gonna play some video games now. Then they play what was popular what's popular, and then they make some uh, what's popular, what they what enthralls them, and then they make stuff based off of that. So you can trace quite common roguelike mechanics in AAA that are finding their way into AAA games now to the rise of Spelunky and other such titles three, four years ago when it came time to make their next game. In a similar way, I think every medium has its cycles. There was a time in Hollywood where, especially in the 80s and 90s, if you were a police officer in a movie, you were the good guy, no matter what you did. And in the early 2000s, that especially with shows like The Shield, The Wire, and so on, that changed. And suddenly, you have this generational divide of people who think that cops are heroes and people who think that government uh, employees, that there's corruption in these systems. And you can trace it directly back to what the cultural trends that they observed in their younger days. 
Look, looking at things like District B13 and so on, you can absolutely trace social movements and rises to uh, the development of games today. And if anything, that pace is increasing. You just just look at the Fortnite emotes. If you do something cool in a Snapchat video today, in three days, Fortnite will have that emote <laughs> and your face. Epic will own it. And just by having existed, you've given them permission to use yeah. it in their game. <laughs> Absolutely. Iteration cycles are increasing. The development of content and the pace of it is increasing. So we're we're ending up in a strange a place where the things we create are feeding on each other and, and across all mediums in very interesting ways, incredibly fast. And I'm not sure how sustainable that pace currently is. Then I have another question for you, because we've seen parkour. So parkour had this like sharp rise in popular culture, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. But now we you don't really see parkour featured as much, you know, like as far as I know, the last James Bond movie didn't have a parkour section where the first one did. And I, I'm curious, it, do you think video games will have that same sort of cooling that that things like movies do where, you know, in movies, parkour was very popular for a while, but now you don't really see it very often. Do you think that video games will have this cooling period where games won't necessarily need to have climbing and traversal mechanics or is it now just part of video game language that video games will forever have these mechanics built into them and obviously i don't mean like forever who knows what video games are going to look like a thousand years from now but you know for like the the next like the foreseeable future is this now an ingrained part of game design because of the pace of games and how fast we we have the fast follower system right of okay battle royale is really fast who can put it in a battle royale mode um, how expensive will that be, and how quickly can we get that in? I'm fairly sure that if you look at our progress to date, we leave a broken trail of mechanics and trends behind us that eventually people always pick back up on. We are a grist mill that eventually always finds a way to come back. So, in terms of parkour, will there be a time where parkour isn't as prominent in games? I'm sure it will. But then some indie or some AAA studio will make a game with parkour and what's old is new again. Or if you can, if you look at things like Dead Cells and Hollow Knight, even Bloodstained, there was a point where we didn't make Metroidvania things at all. And now Metroidvania structures are finding their way in everything, even Star Wars Fallen Order. They've become quite explicit in the previous days that we're making a Metroidvania in the uh, Star Wars universe that also has Dark Souls combat. If anything... Whatever happens next in games, whatever we abandon, we'll just eventually come back to it because the things we make, the way that games work, going back to the reuse everything discussion, going back to the production discussion, it just provides more material for us to pull on and fuse together and make new inevitably um, sometime from now. And I'm excited to see what comes next because it will be different, but it will also be built on what we've already done before. I think that things like genre were very fickle in video games. And I say we as like the, the audience, the consumers of video games, like, you know, MOBAs are very popular for a while. And then they sort of fall out of, um, well, I shouldn't say fall out of popularity. They're still very popular, but the people who won MOBAs won MOBAs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was the, the call of duty style of competitive online multiplayer that was very popular for a while and that's a game without much upwards mobility i think that genre in in the case of genres 
we're very fickle. Like we see genres rise to popularity and fall. Survival horror is, a, I think, a great example of that. Something that was very, very popular, late '90s, early 2000s, fell, and then and, now it's and then fell back. went yeah, and went and, yeah went away, came back. But I think things like game mechanics are a little stickier. Like once once something is established in games, I feel like it as far as a mechanic, it sticks around a lot longer. You know, I, I think of something like aim down sights in first person shooters, right? Like there was a time when when you pulled the trigger on a gun in a first person shooter, you were always firing off the hip and then someone added aim down sights to improve your accuracy. And now more or less that's become the established norm for first person shooters is that you can fire off the hip, but it's less accurate than if you take a moment, aim down the sights, slow down and, and pop off a shot that way. So I'm curious if something like parkour will have a life cycle similar to genre where it's here, it's gone, it comes back, or if it'll be more of like an established mechanic that's just kind of sticks around forever. And I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm just, I guess I'm just kind of throwing it out there as, as a question. I, I'm just as curious as you are, Zolivir, to see where we go in the, in the future of all this. I guess I'll, I'll ask you this question. What can the industry do better in the future? Like how can we improve traversal in video games at least as it relates to things like climbing and parkour i think an increased acknowledgement of the lack of universal solutions in games uh will be a way that we definitively improve our movement mechanics and other mechanics going forward we have all seen as people who play games as people who make games the trend that comes along that everybody pursues and there are people who win in that space, there are people who lose, and then uh, we chase the next thing, right? An increased acknowledgement of what works best in the game I'm making right now for my goals across the entire project in terms of movement, in terms of every mechanic, and not just my monetization system, or not just my story. Even the inclusion of story, an increased recognition that there is various settings and usages of anything that is good that might not work for a game and its goals will advance our medium because it will be people looking at everything that's happened before, every, looking at everything that's happening now, picking and choosing and refining to find what's best for their title. And if we can enable the best way of achieving the vision of a title, barring other popular trends or uh, so-called necessities, the better games we're going to see. It's a tough one because I think it comes down to how your game really feels. I think as a as a developer, understanding what the audience expects and how that affects your game design, uh, but being able to maybe do things that are also unexpected at the same time, you know, and why why something like parkour would be expected or or climbing like in um, I I always go it's, I keep thinking about PUBG a game where you couldn't even go around a, a three foot fence and it's like well there's so many of these three foot fences around it seems like I should be able to get over that and I I I think most people would agree it's like there that game needed to have at least that vaulting mechanic from the beginning it was odd that it didn't um, but you can also do things where you are going above expectations like Titanfall and you, you kind of play around with both and both felt really, really good and tight. So, um, you, you know, I guess my answer to improve things is just developing an understanding of why mechanics, you know, why parkour or climbing would be expected in the style of game that you're doing 
and and sort of thinking about it that way. I'm uh, I'm going to refrain from adding my own thoughts to how the industry can improve because I think you both already said it perfectly and I don't think I can add anything. We'll leave that there. Um, is there anything last minute we wanted to uh, get out before we moved on to our feedback section? I mean, we, we did go the whole episode without mentioning Zelda Breath of the Wild. I will point that out as a game or, that had some important climbing mechanics, but didn't get brought up in this discussion. Yeah. That's a game. I, you know, I'm, I, I played Ocarina of Time and then I played Breath of the Wild. So I don't have like a huge, I don't have like a good barometer for the Zelda games, I don't think. I, did I ever tell you my theory, Jared? I don't know if you remember like the way the, the timeline worked, but uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild came out and then Red Dead Redemption 2 got delayed and I had this theory that it's because they were trying to cram in climbing mechanics at the last minute, like after Zelda came out. I was like, they delayed it because they're adding climbing. That ended up not being the case, but I was, <laughs> I was convinced for a while that that's exactly what had happened. You thought that Arthur Morgan, the guy who talks like this, is going to spend 30 hours just like climbing the hills and uh, I was <laughs> I was almost certain I the the timing like worked out perfect that I was like they're adding climbing like I'm going to That's actually gonna a ha- very clever theory. I would have <laughs> Some CEO is like Zelda's got climbing, why don't we have climbing? I want climbing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, someone way at the top of the the studio who doesn't actually play video games demanding <laughs> it. Absolutely. Um, cool. Well, if we don't have anything else, we can move on to uh, some of our listener feedback. If you have any questions or comments about climbing and parkour or any of our previous topics, please send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, I know I typically solicit topic ideas, but if you have any ideas for guests you'd like us to try to get in contact with, send those along as well. And we'll I'll put in the effort to try to reach out to some people. If there's if there's anyone that you as a listener want to hear us talk to, uh, let me know and I'll, I'll do my best to try and make that happen. Jared, what do we got today? Yeah, we actually got a couple of things submitted by Mr. Mischievous on Twitter. He sent us a thread uh, when we, right after we had sent out a question about detective mechanics with Carolyn Pettit, was our guest. Mr. Mischievous wrote to us and he says, I think the best implementation for this mechanic may be when it's forgettable. If it's integrated seamlessly, it should feel natural to use. I thought Arkham Asylum did it poorly because I only walked around with detective vision due to FOMO, fear of missing out. I also had a problem with Days Gone because of the false positive icons. Yeah. So, so Zolivir, do you do you have this this issue when you're playing games that have things like detective vision in them, where you use the mechanic almost to the detriment of your experience of playing the game? Like, even though you could, you as the player could turn it off, do you ever ruin your own experience playing a game doing something like that? Yeah, I've had I've had multiple experiences where it's like I'm basically only seeing this through detective vision now. After experiencing it across a few games i think i feel better about the uh the short-term pulse like idea and dishonored the uh the duration of like the balance between using just enough of your mana to get turn on the detective vision mode uh Mm -hmm. versus you could basically use the detective vision for free if you only activate it like once every so often maybe every like five seconds or so and i felt like spacing out your detective vision so that you could have it in, in pulses in waves that were appropriate for uh the style of the game and so that you could still appreciate the incredible art around you that that was my preferred you prefer it when the developer protects you from yourself yeah or i think or, <laughs> or incentivizes um using it in, sh- in short bursts that are that fit the game really well 
Yeah, it's it's funny I think because that's a, good, that's a good idea. Well, I it's so funny to me because it's it's absolutely my own fault, and that's the thing in games like Red Dead Redemption Two, right? Like, like I'm the one to blame, but also I I don't know how to not use it. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a it's such a weird part of the psychology of the video game player. I think because I think a lot of people, I I think most people are probably like like us where they would they overuse it to the point that it's not fun but that's that's our own fault i mean that's a hallmark so of we need, good design so is, we need the de- you, you we need the developer get, to protect you, us. you optimize people's happiness without them knowing it right <laughs> that's yeah. such a like that's such a scary way to put it jared <laughs> someday all all ai optimize, is gonna just I'm gonna optimize, optimize our, your happiness life. so you don't even notice <laughs> some kind of dystopian nightmare i just said oh my gosh anyway yep. That's going to do it for listener emails. Again, you can always send us your own emails at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. And please do. We love hearing from everyone. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Zolivir Nelson Jr., man. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a joy. Where can people find your work and how can they keep up with you? At W-R-I-T Nelson on Twitter and Nelson at strangescaffold.com are both places where you can... Well, the latter is where you can contact me directly, uh, and Twitter is where you can both contact me and follow my work pretty efficiently. I have an itch.io, solveyourmakeswords.itch.io, but uh, I might have some more ways for you to follow my work directly and see what I'm making these days that are coming soon, so look out for that. Awesome, and I will uh, I will echo, check out Can Androids Pray, uh, available on itch.io as well, and we will, again, tweet out the link to that as soon as this episode goes live. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and you want to help us out, please head over to your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephen Bennett at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, thanks, guys. Hang in there, everyone. Uh, that, that <laughs> you already did that one, Jared. You already did it. <laughs> you can't do it twice. Like options. Maybe I'll take it out the book beginning. End, bookend the episode with your terrible puns. Get out that's, of here. That's just that's just technically good comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a callback, and we stand by it.